This is Out of Office for February 2016. Global Teams at Work. Welcome to the Out of Office podcast, where you'll learn how to work from virtually anywhere by using the internet for greater convenience, comfort, and freedom. Your hosts are Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Gihan. And you? Yeah, very well, very well. Been enjoying the Fringe Festival, which has just come to a close. We have. It's sad, isn't it? No more yeah. laughs for a month or two. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and except for this podcast. <laughs> Indeed. See, there you go, exactly. there you go. <laughs> okay, so today we're talking about global teams, and uh, uh, so it's an interesting idea because more and more organisations do have this. Uh, they're global organisations, and they have teams in different countries. And specifically, we're looking at organisations which have uh, multiple teams in different countries. So if you're leading and managing that kind of team, it's a little bit different. Uh, from an in-office team where everybody's working together in the same place at the same time. And it's also a little bit different from what you might think of as a distributed team where most of your people are in the office, but you might have individual team members who are part-time or full-time telecommuters. They're working from home or they're working from co-working spaces, but most of your team members are actually in the office. So what, what we're talking about here is where we've got not just individuals who are outside the office, but we've got entire teams who are working from their own offices. And specifically, when we say global teams, we're talking about those teams being around the world. Now, we could say that you could have teams which are regional or state-based or city-based where they're in the same country or the same state. Um, so it's not really global, but it has some of the same issues because we still do have teams in different locations. But that's just a simple example of global. So we're going to look at global today because that has all of those issues about having teams in different offices, plus things like cultural differences and uh, people in different time zones. So it's very, very different from managing any other kind of team because you're not just looking at managing individuals who are working remotely from you, but we're looking at managing uh, teams who are, manager, who are working remotely from you. So we're going to look at it in three broad areas. So the first one is space or distance because now we've got great technology that makes it really easy for us to collaborate or is certainly easier, but physical distance does create barriers between teams. It does create that perceived distance as well. And the second thing is time. When people are in different time zones, collaboration becomes more challenging and there's a, there are a number of issues around that beyond just being able to schedule meetings at the same time. And of course, then there's culture and we're not just talking about uh, corporate culture, but we're talking about ethnic cultural differences. Uh, and even if you have a multicultural team in your office, uh, when you have global teams and people in different countries, uh, that can cause problems as well. Um, and as I said, it's not really a problem with technology anymore. So we've got really good technology. We've got high-speed internet. We've got cloud-based services. We've got mobile access everywhere. So let's take for granted that you've already got those sort of things in place. So you've got your technology in place. Um, that isn't the issue anymore. It's all about people stuff. So those are the three areas we're going to look at. Uh, space time and culture if you're a leader managing a global team. Okay, so let's start with space then. So your global team is going to be distributed across the globe and teams are going to be separated in space. So the kinds of issues that that might create are things like if you've got a large, large organisation then it's likely to have some kind of hi hierarchy but your team might not have that. You might have a team hierarchy that's flat, but because the organisation has an overlying hierarchy, uh, there might be this perception that a hierarchy exists amongst your global team. Also, the location of the leader of the team, where you are, if you're the leader, that, that site or that office might be perceived as being like the head office um, 
even though you could be anywhere in the organization. And if there really is a head office, then if you've got a team that's located in that office, then that team can seem like they're the leadership team, um, even though your team might have, as I said, a flat hierarchy. I experienced it myself uh, way back in the 1990s when I was working for a small software company in Perth and we had a team that we were working with, which a company that bought us in the UK and uh, theoretically we were equal, on equal footing with that team in the UK but because they were in the the UK office and the UK company was a holding company or a parent company, it always felt like even though we're supposed to be treated as equals that they always had, they had the ear of management, they had priority they were the ones who were leading the project even though we seem to be as we were supposed to be equals. Right, yeah. Yeah, and and that kind of us and them uh, attitude can be pervasive, so it can arise for all sorts of reasons. In, in, indeed, some organisations engender a c- competition between teams, um, which is probably counterproductive in, in many circumstances. So that us and them attitude, it can arise because you might have teams based in one country and, team, and other teams in different countries. So that can happen. Or you can have the head office issue that we just, just mentioned. You might have teams of... Um, employees and teams of contractors. So there are all kinds of differences between the makeups of teams and their locations that can create this this us and them um, rivalry that you might not might not want and might be counterproductive. And also you might have teams that are isolated from the bulk of the team. So as a as a as a person who works in the world's most remote capital, so me and my colleague, we're Australia based, but most of the people that we work with are based in the US and UK and Europe. And so we do, we feel that remoteness. The fact that we are out here in the antipodes um, makes us feel remote and isolated. Yeah, in fact, that happened to me with another organisation where we were um, trying to form a national, actually an Australia-New Zealand organisation, and there were three of us here in Perth, and everyone else was on the east coast of Australia or New Zealand, and we did feel quite left out, and in, I think it was probably true that the the rest of the organization did kind of look at us as the remote outpost. So even though we were in the same country as the other Australian members, um, the New Zealand people seemed closer because I guess it was right. easier, closer to the east coast of Australia. Um, in, in, even the time zone was closer at certain parts of the year. It's a smaller time difference. So we did feel like that remote outpost, and I think we were treated that way. Um, and eventually we kind of, that, that that organization didn't quite work. And I think part of the reason was that here in Perth, we were very strong. We were building up our part of the organization very well, but um, it became very East Coast centric and we really did feel like we were uh, we were left out. Yeah, and I think we're used to that in Perth, aren't we, Gihan? It, it happens a lot. The East Coast does tend to dominate and I'm sure similar things happen in other parts of the world, in the US, Europe and elsewhere. Yep, exactly. And then the, the structure of your global team can also cause problems. You might have um, a large group, a, a couple of large groups, and then some smaller groups, and those differences in size can mean that the smaller teams feel marginalised compared with the rest of the the rest of the teams. And getting back to hierarchy, uh, different cultures view hierarchy with different statuses and different levels of importance. So, so that hierarchy effect can impact on different parts of your team differently. Yeah, and even in uh, even with cultures where you think you've got a lot in common. I found that when I was working in that UK organization, um, so I started off working in Perth. And then when I went to the UK for a few years on secondment, I spent a lot of time in my boss's office. Actually, he wasn't my boss. He was my boss's boss. But he was somebody who'd come out to Perth a few years earlier. And we used to go and play indoor soccer. We used to go to barbecues together. So I knew him quite well. But... Um, 
I realized later that it wasn't really the done thing to go and talk to the boss's boss. It's like almost like going over your boss's head, mm-hmm. even though we were going and talking about social things. But sometimes we talk about work-related things as well. But we found that in the UK, that hierarchy was seen as much more important, and uh, you had to kind of follow the established lines of management, whereas here in Australia, it wasn't the case. You can talk to anyone at any time. Yeah, we're much less formal. Yeah, exactly. What do we do about it, Gihan? Yeah, so look, there's some of the issues, but um, the way to manage it is to just be proactive because physical distance you can't do anything about. But look at the perceived distance between people and look at ways that you can manage that. Um, so look at things like authority. So if there is a, if there's a perceived hierarchy, make sure that you do share and rotate management responsibilities among your teams. And it may be simple things like getting some uh, different offices to host and chair meetings. Uh, even if they're online meetings, the person who initiates the meeting is generally seen as the host. The person who facilitates and moderates it uh, is a chair, and they're generally seen as a person with higher authority. And in fact, I think you should go further than equality. You should look at, well, you can look at it as affirmative action, if you like, give the remote teams um, even higher status than just equal. So maybe they get to chair more of the meetings than others. Maybe they get asked first um, for their input, maybe they get uh, slightly more, if you like, seniority, because it probably means more to them. Um, I reckon it's a little bit like a, a Australia-Kiwi relationships uh, with New Zealand. Like New Zealanders care a lot more about what Australians think about them than we do about what Kiwis think about us. Just uh, okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and that does happen, and there, there is that maybe that implicit feeling in in the the, the bigger teams or the more the more important teams in, in terms of perception that, you know, why do these other teams care about who gets to chair the meeting? What difference does it make? Well, it does make a difference to them. Mm. So, so do that. And the other thing you can do is just encourage everyone to question things, create an environment where people don't feel that what happens, what comes out of head office is gospel truth. It's, it's not. So build it into your work, regular work schedule so that people have an opportunity to question, to disagree, to dispute, to argue, to do all those sort of things that do make it clear that there really isn't a hierarchy. Um, and if you can, like as I said, build it into your regular workflow. I heard about this company called URX where every Friday afternoon, and this is a team that meets in office, but they have this thing called contrarian office hour where anybody can can raise any concerns or issues or criticisms about the way things are done. And the whole idea is that that's a time where you give permission for people to complain and whinge and do the sort of things that uh, during the normal workday they might feel reluctant to do. But the idea is that you, uh, you give people permission to do that openly. Very good. And when it comes to the team's purpose, their roles and their goals, just remind everyone that that the organization's hierarchy doesn't necessarily exist. Just remind everyone that the global team is a single entity, that you're all working together on uh, the same set of goals and the same targets, that you're a cohesive unit, and just highlight how each of the individual teams within that larger team, how the roles and the things that they're working working on fit into a bigger picture, how they work towards achieving an overall goal and how that fits into the larger organisation or company strategy. And when you're communicating with your team, try and avoid language that reinforces those those location-based ideas. So rather than talking about London needing a report by Friday, say that the sales team need a report by Friday because they're giving a presentation to a respective client. So avoid that, that silo-based language. 
and also encourage the, the teams to get together and talk directly with one another. They don't have to go through uh, the hierarchy of, 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 of meeting with uh, the global team. They can, they can get together individually on their own basis as they need to. It might cause a few, a few road bumps. There might be situations in which action is taken without the correct authorization, but the, 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 the benefits will outweigh the cost. And make extra effort to speak to those more remote teams, um, not just uh, not just the leaders of those teams, but but speak to them all um, and, and try and include them more in your communication. And finally, those people who are more isolated, let them know that they can come to you if they've got problems. They don't have to wait for you to approach them and draw it out of the draw it out of them. They can talk to you at any time that they need to raise an issue with you. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, ironically, you as the leader, uh, as the person in authority, have the most opportunity to influence the, uh, the breaking down of those hierarchies, because if they, if people in your teams, and this is the global team, sees you as somebody who doesn't care so much about hierarchy, then they will become more mm-hmm. open to the idea. On the other hand, if they see you as only talking to your team leaders or um, always positioning your position within the organization, then they will see that hierarchy as well. Yep. Okay, so the second big area is time, um, and this really comes out to time differences. So if you're working in a global team, and even in some countries like Australia and the USA, where you might be working across multiple time zones, time differences become important. And the obvious thing is that it's difficult to coordinate meetings because people are working in different time zones, and sometimes it's impossible to find a time which fits everybody's regular working hours. So some people are expected to work outside normal hours, so it infringes on their personal life. But the other thing is that even if if you can schedule everything during working hours and there's some overlap, just understand that people's energy is different at different times of the day. Uh, and I found this, it actually worked um, in both directions. It was both a positive and a negative. When I was working for that small company uh, here in Perth, where we were working, liaising with the team in the UK, um, I remember once we actually won a small business award uh, for our work with some of the some of our clients we had here in Australia. And one of the reasons that we won it was because we were seen as a very responsive organization. And part of the reason we were responsive was that at the end of our day, at four or five o'clock in the afternoon, if a client came to us with some sort of request and it involved and it involved the UK team, but the client didn't know that, um, we could, you know, it was the end of our day, but we could contact the U- UK team and say, oh, look, we've got this request. Um, can you do it by tomorrow? And for them, it was the start of their day, so they had a whole day to work on it. So we went home, went to bed, woke up the next morning, came into work, and the problem was solved. Um, so that worked really well. So that, that time difference made a, made a big difference to us in a positive way. But I found the opposite when I was on secondment in the UK, where I was working very closely with the the Australian team, in fact, that was part of my job, to be work very closely with them. And at the start of our day in the UK, if we had something that we needed resolved or fixed, we'd, um, I'd call the, the Perth office, speak to my um, team members there and ask them, can you do this? And I was really excited because the start of the day and we had a whole day to do it in, but not realizing that it was 4.30 or 5 p.m. for them. And it was a real burden for them to go, oh, no, I really need to f- get this done because Gihan and his team really need it. And so they'd work late, they'd um, just rush to do stuff, and it was a real it was a real challenge for them. So just be aware of that, that energy levels are different. Um, and the other thing around times is, of course, um, people in different countries have uh, different issues around when they're available, not just 
time of day, but things like public holidays, uh, daylight savings time. Um, every year, invariably, there are problems uh, with me in Perth and people on the East Coast when they change the, their clocks and they don't realize that Perth has changed, doesn't change their clocks. And so you know, just, just be aware of those sort of things when you're looking at scheduling meetings. Um, and I think as a result of all of that, there is a real temptation in teams to do everything using deferred communication, not immediate communication. In other words, they go, okay, well, it's really hard to schedule a meeting or people, we can't do it because people, it's going to uh, infringe on people's personal time. So let's just go back to email and texts and uh, online stuff and bulletin boards and wikis and blogs and never get that sort of in-person immediate communication, which is a problem and it is a weakness, but it's an easy, easy trap to fall into. Yeah, and so one of the problems of using deferred communication is that it, it can introduce delays, and there are just some times when you do need that immediate communication to get things done. You need something that's more responsive than a deferred communication channel. So I think it's just avoid that temptation to make everything deferred. Try, uh, when it's important, try to use immediate communication in spite of some of the pain and difficulty uh, of in dealing with um, different time zones and those sorts of things. Sometimes you just have to go through a bit of pain when uh, the circumstances require it. But if you do have to use, if, if, if deferred communication is all you've got, sometimes, sometimes you just have to use it, then focus on using it in a way that's going to avoid the delays that, it's, that it introduces. So if possible, um, send your, your request, your email, for instance, to the individual who can make the decision that needs to be made. And if you do have to draw other people into that conversation, then ensure that you're specific about the person from whom uh, you need the decision so that you know that, that that person is being addressed and they know that something is expected of them. And also ensure that you communicate that this is time critical and um, make a polite request that you would like a response by a reasonable in a reasonable amount of time, but but give them a deadline and, and be polite about it. Yeah, I think it's not just time critical, Chris. I think it's for anything. Just say, yeah, this is not urgent. Can you reply by you know two weeks' time? Or I'd really like a reply by tomorrow. Um, it just helps other people, the person at the other end, prioritise appropriately. And if it's not time critical, it, it really helps them because they know they can defer it until um, a time that they can do it and yeah. not interrupt their current work. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Good point. And the other thing that you can do is that you can have uh, some rules of thumb whereby you can make make some assumptions and have some default actions. So, for example, you could say things like, if I don't hear back from you by the end of business tomorrow, then I'll assume such and such and I'll take this particular action. And if you have that as a, a way of working, a default way of working, then people get used to that idea and they'll know that when requests are coming through that um, that, that, that there will be a default action taken and, and if, if they don't want that to happen, then they need to provide you with some guidance otherwise. And given that time zones are a part of the issue here, then when you are talking about times, make sure that you specify within which time zone. So if you're saying at the end of business, well, at the end of whose business day are we talking about? This exactly the sorts of things you talked about earlier, Gihan. And be conscious that um, public holidays and festivals, things like Ramadan, um, they occur at different times of year in different places. So one of the Egyptian teams that I work with, they work through uh, 
they work from Sunday through to Thursday and, and they have Friday and Saturdays off. So they were constantly having to remind us, well, we can't do this. We're not working on Friday, but we'll, we will pick it up on Sunday. Different teams in different parts of the world are going to have different working weeks. They're going to have public holidays and daylight savings and those sorts of things. And you have to remember that. And look, there's going to be a bit of pain involved and try and share that equally and evenly uh, across your teams. You know, there's, as someone who's working in the most isolated situation in my teams, it's often the case that I'm the one who, not often, but it's, it happens enough times that I'm the one who has to stay up late um, to get to team meetings. Um, so every now and then we'll schedule one where it's everyone else in the team who has to uh, come in early so that I can meet them uh, at a more reasonable time. So try and share it around so that uh, it's not the same team that's always having to suffer and, and uh, work late or get up really early to attend meetings and those sorts of things. So that's, that's quite a mature attitude in your team, Chris, that the rest of the team is willing to say, okay, instead of just inconveniencing Chris every time, uh, once in five or once in six or seven times, we'll, we'll all be inconvenienced. Yeah, yeah, good on them. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is really good on them because it's so easy to go, okay, well, it's actually, um, we'll inconvenience one person all the time and that's much better than inconvenience everyone else. Yeah, and I think also they recognised that, you know, I was, Making, I could just say, oh, look, this is too late. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stay up till 9 p.m. for, for a meeting. Um, you know, it's just too late for me. So they, so by putting in the effort and enduring a little bit of pain, they, they were, you know, they felt it was reasonable for them to do likewise every now and then. Yeah, great. Great. Um, and look, one last thing I'd comment on this area, Chris, is that despite all the care that you take about times and time zones and time differences, people will, will get this wrong. And I find this over and over again with things like scheduling webinars, scheduling meetings, that people put times manually into their calendar thinking that they take the time zone into account and forget that daylight savings has shifted over. And, um, you know, there's things that you can do to make the process 100% foolproof, but people will still make mistakes. So it's actually not 100% foolproof because, you know, fools are so ingenious, as the, <laughs> as the old saying goes. So as a leader, just, just be tolerant of that. Just accept that occasionally the mistakes are going to happen. But again, that the benefit will outweigh the cost. It's, it's worth putting the effort in to get those sort of things like immediate communication, setting yeah. clear deadlines, um, calling meetings even if it's inconvenient. It's worth doing that even though um, the occasional problem will slip through and it'll happen. Good. All right. The last thing that we'll talk about for global teams is cultural differences. So when you have teams working all over the globe, then the context within which they're working is going to differ as well as the, the time zones and, and the actual physical location itself. They're going to be operating within different cultures. And the most obvious one of those, most obvious cultural differences is going to be things like language. It'll be unlikely that uh, the team is going to have the same first language spoken and written. So that means that in things like meetings, the people for whom uh, the, the team's language is their first language, they're going to tend to dominate, while those for whom it's a second language might just sit back and listen. So you have to work hard to overcome that sort of problem. Also, when writing messages and emails and documentation, then if English, or sorry, if uh, the team's language isn't your first, is, isn't, um, isn't your first language, then Communicating in writing can make you look like you're not as smart as if you were writing in your first language. Often the, the, the first, the, the team's language is going to be English. I've come across that most often, thankfully, because I can't speak any other languages. Um, and then another cultural issue is things like hierarchy. As we mentioned earlier, 
um, different cultures res- uh, have different levels of respect for hierarchy. So in some cases, if you're the boss, then in some cultures they're going to say, well, your word is gospel and, um, and doubting and questioning it, questioning it is considered rude. Even if you're not the boss, then things like age, race and gender can affect the, your status within the team. Things like formality are also important. Uh, Aussies are notoriously informal and happy to call people by their first names or even their nicknames, but this can be uncomfortable for other cultures. It's it's considered disrespectful uh, to, to use first names, and so you just have to be aware of that. Uh, when it comes to money and cost of living, it's you know it's great to be open and transparent about about financial issues, but talking about how much you're getting paid and the sorts of bonuses you're receiving and the the cost of things is perhaps inappropriate and uh, best not discussed out and open in front of the rest of your team. Yeah, there's a there's a trend in many teams to to disclose salaries and to have that sort of information public, which is actually generally a good thing, but. This is one area where you've got, because you've got different standards of living, cost of living, different and expectations in different countries. This is maybe one area where that transparency works against you rather than works in your, in your favor. Mm. Yep. And then the way that um, people participate in meetings can differ across cultures. So uh, I understand that uh, in Japanese meetings that um, silence often indicates that uh, the participants are thinking about what's just been said as opposed to the uncomfortable silence that it might, might otherwise be interpreted as. And even simple things like just summarising um, what someone has just said can also be an affront that uh, you sort of if you're repeating something someone's just said, it can be a sign of mistrust. Also, attendance at meetings, so punctuality is uh, given different levels of importance and status in different in different cultures. Um, how women uh, are considered and treated, they could there's from the overt and obvious discrimination through to the more subtle things like use of Ms versus Miss and Mrs, um, and use of he as a generic pronoun when writing. And finally, things like rapport. So um, we like to, in the West, we often like to keep things on a professional level and avoid, uh, you know, delving into people's personal circumstances. But uh, in in China, I understand that uh, in business, people like to get to know you first on a personal level and and understand that they can trust you before engaging in you engaging with you on a, in business. And so that can lead to circumstances where you might, in a professional context, uh, be asked what you feel is an inappropriate personal question. Yeah, one of my um, colleagues, my speaking colleagues, David Thomas, who is an expert in China, uh, and he runs a business called Think Global, he told me a story about how he once went to China and was working with a client for many years, and all his conversations with that client were purely personal. So he'd, when he'd go to China, his client would take him to his family home. They'd go out to um, meals with the family and they'd never talk business. He would only ever talk business with the next level down, so that mm-hmm. client's uh, staff. Uh, but it was very important for him to have the personal relationship with the client and that counted for everything before he could start talking business. And that happens in organizations with global teams, that uh, they're people who want to talk and find out all about your family before they are willing to do business with you. And uh, for us, it's the other way around. We, we see it as let's make it professional first and then maybe we'll leak out a little bit of information about our personal lives. Yeah, yep. Okay, so the, the solution to this is, is uh, simple but not easy. So mm-hmm. the solution is to embrace diversity. And we say this even within our uh, in-office teams or with, our, with any teams. But it's, um, it's easier said than done, but it is, the, it is the solution. And I think it goes at two levels. So first of all, understand differences. And second, 
then embrace that. Embrace that. So first of all, just be, just know that everyone, everyone's not the same. And, and by the way, this applies to the way that you treat your team members, as well as ensuring that your teams throughout, like everyone in your teams, uh, treats everyone the same way as well in, in these two areas. So first of all, like you're looking at understanding differences, it's looking for things that uh, people interpret differently. So for example, if you say, let's table something, that means the opposite in Australia, as it does in the US. And in fact, I can't even remember the differences anymore, which one. So if you say, I want to table an issue, what does that mean, Chris? Does that mean put it on the table, bring it to the agenda? Yeah, so I think in Australia, that would mean that it's it's something to discuss right away, whereas in yeah. the US, it means let's defer this to, exactly. a, a, to another time. Exactly. So it's the exact opposite. Um, and then just things like colloquial expressions. I know when I was working in the UK um, on secondment, uh, one of my UK colleagues came up to me and he said, I got this email from Steve and I don't understand what he means. And he says, oh, uh, it says, can you take a gander at this document? <laughs> and, and he had no idea what it meant. Uh, so I explained it to him and then I called Steve and made a bit of a laugh over it. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I realized that later. But I already sent him another email saying, oh, can you get back to me this Arvo? <laughs> <laughs> so confused him even further. So just just be aware of things like that. Um, the look, the other thing is when you've got cultural differences, just be careful not to take offence too quickly because you will see sort of things that will make you cringe and worse. And uh, just recognise that it might be from their culture that they're looking at things differently, and vice versa. So if somebody comes back at you because of something that you said or you didn't say, then just realize that it may be because you misinterpreted the way that they would interpret it. Um, so do be careful, not to, to, don't take offense too quickly, but if there is unacceptable behavior, then you do need to address it promptly and, and privately as well because you don't want to cause embarrassment. Um, and the other side of that is give positive feedback regularly and promptly. So when people are doing things the right way, just give them that feedback and it's more important across cultures because then again they need to have reinforced that what they're doing is the way that, that the way that's acceptable and it's not just acceptable in your culture it's acceptable across the whole team so just be aware that the way you're doing things is not necessarily the right way um, don't assume cultural stereotypes uh, even positive cultural stereotypes, they shouldn't assume that all Indians and Sri Lankans love cricket. So, you know, sometimes people ask me about cricket, and which I do love, but they assume that I follow the Sri Lankan cricket team rather than the Australian cricket team. And so, yeah, those sort of assumptions, then they're hardly likely to cause offence. But in a work context, there may, may be things analogous to that, which do cause problems. Um, and definitely don't assume the negative stereotypes, uh, especially if you're looking at things that were like a generation ago about certain countries or certain cultures. Um, in our highly connected world now, people really are. There are smart, educated, well-spoken, you know, even reasonably well-off people who might be better off than you financially uh, by their standards than, uh, than you might expect. And especially if you're thinking about things from a you know, colonial mindset, and uh, I think we're not, we're, we're beyond that, but it's easy to fall if those sort of traps. All right. So, so that's you know understanding and, and accommodating the differences, the cultural differences in your team. But go beyond that. Actually, embrace it. So we mentioned earlier when talking about um, um, team hierarchy, encourage your team to to contact each other directly, and in, and by doing so, you know they get to know each other better. They'll develop rapport and uh, be able to celebrate and and embrace each other's differences. 
Also, when you are meeting as a team, dedicate, especially the, especially when the team is first forming, but also in an ongoing basis, dedicate some time to just having a, a few, the first initial five minutes where people just talk about their day, talk about themselves, what they've been up to. Again, so that organically people get to know about each other, they'll understand where Gihan's coming from, you know, what his life's, what his life is like, and People can, you know, understand and and, and embrace the differences that uh, that are represented across their team. But also, as well as you know, just setting aside times where that can happen organically, also make ex- explicit efforts towards um, understanding the, the cultural differences in your team. So you can uh, have, say, a monthly presentation where someone might talk about a local festival or a local event that's taking place uh, in the country or the culture that their team is from. And finally, if it's possible, try and get your team together face-to-face. It doesn't always have to be at head office. If you can swap the locations around, that's worthwhile doing in spite of maybe the additional expense. But getting people together, bringing them together, is a great way for them to learn more about each other uh, and in particular the cultural circumstances that they're coming from. Yeah, great. So, look, I just think that the biggest thing I would say, and in conclusion, I guess, is that this is one of those things where as a leader, it's up to you to take the lead because it's very easy not to and it's very easy to assume that everything's working well but you don't realize what isn't working. And quite often, you don't even see the results of things not working. It's just that things slowly degrade until they finally got to the point where it's just become dysfunctional and very unproductive. So this is the... the I think that the biggest thing that you can get from this is to take the lead, recognize that you do need to take responsibility for removing the or reducing the perceived distance between people, for looking at time and making sure that people can do things in time and embracing the diversity across cultures. So that's your job and it's an important part of your job and your role as a leader. And and it's one that's increasingly important, Gihan. As you said, Organizations and teams are becoming more global. We're living in a more globalized world. So more and more, when talking to friends and colleagues and um, people at parties, I'm finding more people these days are working in global contexts. They're working in global teams or they're doing business with people from around the world. So the issues that we've talked about today are of increasing importance. And you need to learn how to, how to deal with it and how to lead appropriately in these circumstances. Great. Well, thank you for that conversation, Chris. I know you and I both worked in global teams, so I hope we've shared some ideas, both from our own experience and a broader perspective, about how to lead and manage a global team. Thanks, Gihan, and we'll be back in about a month's time with another topic. And until then, bye for now. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Bye for now.